good morning. Um, I am sincerely grateful for the spiritual heritage that I received from my parents when I was growing up. And some of you are laying a spiritual heritage now, but I realized it was something that was really wonderful. My parents were not only devout in their faith, but their parents' parents were, and their parents' parents' parents were, and their siblings. And on both sides of our family, there was just a, a kind of a devotion to the things of God. And I, I appreciate that. Some of you know that two of my dad's brothers ended up in full-time Christian ministry, both pastors in addition to my own father. On my mom's side of the family, as long as I can remember, even when I was just a little kid, I remember my uncles and aunts and, and cousins and all heading to church every single weekend. They served in the church in various ways maybe worship leaders, board members, teaching Sunday school, whatever. There's just a lot, of, a lot of spiritual devotion in the family. And I've mentioned before that our family reunions were a little bit like a church service. We would have our potluck meal and enjoy the meal, then afterwards we'd have kind of a sharing time. Sometimes we'd sing a hymn or two. And then usually one of my uncles would share something, and it would be an exhortation to really be devout to God, to really make sure that God was at his right place in our lives and all. And so it was like a church service, so much so that one year, a couple women that were passing by thought it was a church service and joined us. Uh, they sat down and um, they didn't see the huge sign that said Herring Family Reunion. They just thought this is a, a church service. And so they sat down and kind of enjoyed the thing. But I, I had to laugh at the end because when our reunions were done, we always passed around a little container or a hat or something for everyone to contribute a little bit for the expenses of the pavilion and other things related to the reunion. We're all dropping money in and these two ladies open up their purses and drop money in and none of us had the heart to tell them this isn't a church service, it's just a family reunion. But I'm grateful for this heritage and I, I view it as something special. And I don't think I'd be here today if it weren't for it. However, over the years, as I reflected on my heritage and my upbringing and just, just a lot of things related to what it was, going to church and all these other things, I realized that I was, I had a lot of pride, you know? I had a lot of self-righteousness, like I, I, I tended to look down on other people because I was doing certain things like, you know, the good church people did, and I would, I would look down on other people, I would judge them. And I think that this was something that might have even been true of all, all of us in a sense because we all wanted to put on this image that we were good church people on the outside. The problem is that those things don't address what a person is on the inside. And so from an outward perspective, you know, we were doing things that we thought, you know, good church people were supposed to do. We were going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. We went Wednesday night every week. We, we didn't do certain things that we thought were bad. You weren't supposed to listen to certain music. You weren't supposed to watch certain movies. We didn't play cards. You know, just a list of all these things. And if we checked them all off, you know, we were like good Christians and it'd be easy to look down on someone that didn't do those things. But... None of those things really address the root problem that we all have spiritually. It's a problem of the heart. That all of us in our family 
had a sinful nature and within our hearts. Jesus talked about this. He said, you know, the heart is just, it's just filled with all kinds of, of, of things that aren't good. You know, lust, judgmentalism, you know, adultery, he talked about anger, murder, all these other things, impurity, selfishness. These are the things that are in the heart and these are things that from an outward appearance, you could fool a lot of people, but inwardly, I knew and I'm sure all of us knew that there were issues, you know, that, that there's a problem in here. And this is why I'm convinced that in order for us to have a relationship with God, we have to have a born-again experience, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But the change has to take place from within. That it's never been about the things we do. It's always been about what God wants to do in and through us, a change that only He can produce in our lives. Now, Jesus was constantly dealing with religious people. And these were the people he had the most trouble with. And this is what's kind of sobering for me because I realized, you know, Jesus dealt with these Pharisees. These were people that knew their Bible inside and out, and yet they were so blind. And they had no clue about what really mattered, and they weren't open to Jesus, and they could not see what was inside of them. It was so bad that Jesus even said to them on one occasion, he's looking at, these are religious leaders. I mean, can you imagine going up to a pastor or a priest or something, looking them in the eye and saying what Jesus did? He said, you're a whitewashed tomb. That's what you people are. You're whitewashed tombs. Because on the outside, it looked really good, but in the inside, you see, it didn't. Because God's the one who sees the heart. He knows the things that we struggle with, the sins that stir within our hearts that, that really defile us, Jesus said. It's the sins of the heart that defile. Now, today we're going to look at a familiar story to some of you. We're going through uh, the series, of course, is called Face to Face. We're talking about the encounters that Jesus had with various individuals. And today I want to look at a story that I think, if you know the Gospel of John, some of the stories we're going to look at throughout this series will be somewhat familiar to you. I hope we have humility to pick up some new things, but the guy we're looking at today in an encounter that Jesus had with this guy, his name was Nicodemus, and he was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. And Nicodemus was the type of guy that he would have, in evaluating himself or if the people of his day evaluated him, all of them would conclude he's kind of a good guy. As we'll see in a minute, he had a lot of things going for him. He was doing a lot of things that were right, but he was blind to his own spiritual condition. He didn't recognize the problem of the heart, which is the problem many times when people are religious or good. We, again, don't see many times the need within our own hearts. Dr. Warren Wearsby writing about Nicodemus said, he was a man of high moral character, deep religious hunger, and yet profound spiritual blindness. Now today we're gonna to be looking at John chapter three, and in this encounter that Nicodemus, this religious leader had with Jesus, I think he was very sincere. I think he really did wanna know who this Jesus was, and and what it would mean for his life and what Jesus would want to say to the people of Israel. So we pick up the story in the verse, first verse of John 3 where we read, there was a man from the Philistine, or, uh, I'm sorry, Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Now, the Pharisees were among the most devout and conservative sect of religious leaders out there in Jesus' day. They had, they had hundreds of rules that they were following, and they had adhered to these particular rules. And this guy comes to Jesus, and it says that he came, came at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God. And again, I think he's very sincere here. We know you've come from God. You couldn't do what, you, what the miracles you do. Now, most of the religious leaders of his day would not have admitted this. Nicodemus was rare because most of the Pharisees refused to acknowledge Jesus came from God because if they acknowledged that, they'd have to listen to what he had to say and they didn't want to do that. But this guy at least acknowledged that. But he was a Pharisee and he was trapped in this system. In addition to that, though, he was a little bit more important than just a Pharisee. According to a scholar by the name of Borchard, John's description of him marks him not merely as a community leader, but as one of the revered 70 who, along with the high priest, composed the Sanhedrin, the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. So this guy was kind of a big deal. It's the cream of the crop. But he senses something in his spirit. He wants to talk to Jesus about it. He arrives at night. Now, a lot has been written about why did he go at night? Some have suggested it's because he was embarrassed to be seen talking to Jesus. A more likely reason is that he wanted to have a private conversation with Jesus. He didn't want the crowd around. And I really think that that's probably why he did it. And then he addresses Jesus in a very honoring way when he called him rabbi. Rabbi, we know you've come from God because rabbi is a, it's a term that was only used of revered teachers. It's a, it's a word that means great one. And so there are lots of things that Nicodemus was acknowledging about this Jesus. And when Nicodemus said, we know you've come from God, in the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written, that phrase is in the emphatic position in the sentence. In other words, this should be translated, rabbi, from God, we know you've come. That's the emphasis. From God, you've come. And so he was searching. Instead of responding to Nicodemus's comment, though, Jesus, it's like he ignored it. You know, if someone uh, had come to you and said, we know you've come from God, you might have responded by saying something like, yes, you're right, I've come from God, and this is that. Jesus completely ignored his, his statement. He went right for what I call the jugular with Nicodemus. He turned the conversation around immediately. The attention was immediately turned to Nicodemus. And he got to the heart of Nicodemus's problem right away. In verse three, Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's his first words, at least what's recorded here. I assure you, a person can't see the kingdom of God. He got to the heart of the matter of what Nicodemus, I think, was maybe really asking. And when Jesus began with these words, I assure you, some of your versions say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, but they're, they're very strong words. Jesus only said that phrase when he wanted them to really understand that this is something you better believe. It was something that I think he anticipated his listeners would not believe. And so I'd say, truly, truly, I want to tell you this, don't, 
don't overlook this, and I don't want us to miss it either. Unless you're born again, unless we are born again, we will not see the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus said to Nicodemus applies to us as well. What does it mean to be born again? You know, this was a, a term. Jesus is the one, of course, who first used it, but in our culture, Jimmy Carter made it popular. Remember when he was running for president, you know, and he's talking about the born again, you know. And back then, people misunderstood what it meant, and they do in our day as well. I've had people that have actually come up to me and said, I don't know what you mean when you talk about this born again. The, the words can be translated a, different, a few different ways. It can be translated born again, as in a second time. It can be born anew, in other words, freshly, or probably the more literal translation is born from a, on high, born from above. All three are true of the expression. What Jesus is talking about is a second birth, a new birth, and a birth that can only be brought about from heaven downward. It's something that God wants to accomplish. We must be born again if we're ever going to experience the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus was basically saying to Nicodemus, this righteous guy who, again, I think everyone would have looked at him and said, if anyone's right with God, it's you. And he said, you've got a problem. You've got a need in your life. There needs to be a, a, a new birth in you, despite all the outward stuff. I mean, you think about this guy for a minute. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Most likely, he would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, if you don't think that's a big deal, most people can't wade through Deuteronomy just reading it, let alone memorizing it word for word. And he knew the rest of the Bible inside and out as well. He's somebody that would have been faithful to go to the temple. He fulfilled all of the requirements of the law, just like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He did everything that the law required. He was someone who would have given a full tithe of everything that came in, a full tenth of his entire income he'd give back to God. He was someone who would have given alms to the poor. He's someone who would have fasted often. He would have set aside food so that he could be devout to God. And he's someone that would have avoided a lot of sinful situations so that he wouldn't get contaminated. So you get a picture of this guy. I mean, honestly, he's got everything going for him. I mean, he's, he's checking off all the boxes, but I think also he was kind of a nice guy. And again, I would say, from the average person's perspective, if anybody could merit God's favor, if anyone could earn eternal life by what they did and how they lived their lives, it would have been this guy. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, if someone is not born again, they, they, won't, they won't even enter the kingdom of God. They'll never see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. And this might have been hard for him to hear, but it's true of all of us. Also, Paul talked about the problem of our sinfulness in Romans 3, 10 through 12. Sin, by the way, just means to miss the mark. He wrote, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. That is the problem. And Jesus was trying to help Nicodemus see the problem because through the lens in which he had been living his life, all he saw was that I'm, I'm doing okay. He didn't see the need. 
And so Jesus piqued his curiosity with this idea, a new birth is what's required for you and for everybody. So Nicodemus asks about it, looking at verse 4. How can anyone be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I don't think he believed that, by the way. I think he's just kind of challenging even what Jesus is saying. They're like, how how does this work? I, I don't get it. What are you saying? Jesus answered, I assure you, there it is again, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever's born of flesh is flesh. Whatever's born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus? Are you a teacher of Israel? And a better translation is, are you Israel's teacher? Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know about these things. So Jesus said what was required here is you had to have uh, two births. He said you have to be born of water and the spirit. Now, Bible commentators discuss back and forth, what does that mean to be born of water and the spirit? It's an important question because we want to get this right, right? What does it mean to be born of water and the spirit? And there are two possible answers. I want to suggest both are correct. And and both might be what Jesus was getting at. They both might be wrapped in together here. But the first perspective is that what Jesus was referring to was John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance for sin. You know, John preached the message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was trying to get people to face the sin in their own lives. And then then they would be uh, baptized in water as a sign of their desire to turn from that. And then the second part of the equation would be to turn to Jesus. And and so the one, you know, John the Baptist himself even said, one's coming after me that will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so you got this baptism of water, then you have this baptism of spirit. Now the water baptism part is not the part that would save, but what is essential here is that if a person is going to get right with God, if they're going to be born again, it requires an acknowledgement of your sin that you need a savior, and then it requires turning to Jesus as the answer. And John's baptism was helping to point to the problem of sin. Jesus came as the solution. And so you could see how both of those could be wrapped up in this. The other possibility here, and it's the one I tend to lean toward, is that Jesus was just talking about physical versus spiritual baptism, just comparing the two and contrasting the two. You know, when a, a child is born, the first thing that happens is, is the water breaks. Or usually, that's the case, the water breaks. And then the baby comes out, and it's a birth of water in a sense. And so many feel like that's what Jesus is talking about. You've got to be born physically, and you know what that's all about, and you have to be born spiritually. Both are true. And part of the reason I think this is probably the better interpretation is what the very next verse says, verse 6, where Jesus said, well, it's kind of simple. What, what, what is born of flesh is flesh. You know, there's a thing called physical birth. And then he said, but whatever's born of the spirit is spirit. And then Jesus began to define what spiritual birth looked like. He said, well, it's not something you can see with your eyes. That's one of the differences. 
You know, physical birth, you can see it, but a spiritual birth, you can't see it. It's like, well, it's kind of like the wind, you know? I have often been fascinated by the wind. I guess some of these things, I, I don't know, I never out, have out, outgrown them, but I'm fascinated by the wind because it can be so strong, but you can't see it at all. It can be so powerful. All you see is the effect of the wind, but you, never, you can't see the wind. Unless there's some dust in it, but you cannot see the wind physically. But it's very, very powerful, and you see the effect of it. And Jesus was saying, this new birth I'm talking about is not a physical birth, it's a spiritual birth. But second, and this is really key, it is not a birth that you can bring about. It's a spiritual birth that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in a person's life. You can't do it, which is a key part to how we get right with God, abandoning the idea that we can do things to earn God's favor or get right with God. You cannot be born again by going to church, by by doing good things, by avoiding bad things. That's not how you're born again. This is something that has to come down from above. This is something that, that the Holy Spirit does inside of a person. That's what Jesus was saying here. And it's a spiritual birth. You can't earn it. It's something God will do for you if the conditions are right. But how do you get it? And Nicodemus wondered that. Well, then, okay, if I need this spiritual birth, how does it happen? What do I need to do here? At this point, Jesus got into two things I talk about fairly often around here, and that is that for a person to really um, have a new birth, to experience salvation, which means deliverance from the penalty of sin, it involves understanding who Jesus was and is, and then what he came to do, and then you put your trust in him. Those are the elements that are necessary. Who is this Jesus, and what did he come to do? Well, Jesus immediately launched into those two things then. He's answering the question, how can you be born again? And so in verse 13, Jesus made an amazing claim. He said, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I don't know if you catch what he's saying here. He was alluding to the fact that he was going to be returning to heaven, of course, you know, No one ascends into heaven except they came down there from the first place. But the main thing he's saying is, I came from there, not here. I'm not from this world. I'm not from this earth. Now, that's huge. And I don't know what Nicodemus did with that. You know, no one has ascended into heaven, which Jesus, again, was going to do after the cross. He was going to return to his father. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man. That's where I came from. I'm not from this earth. I'm the Son of Man and the Son of God. Now, if you question whether Jesus was really saying that, this phrase, Son of Man, is is very, very significant because scholars are, seem like, mostly in agreement that Jesus was quoting from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, had a prophetic vision of a scene that took place in heaven. And there's someone who's described as being a son of man who's entered or ushered into the presence of the Lord God Almighty. It's found in Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14, where Daniel wrote, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, 
and was escorted before him, he, the Son of Man, was given authority to rule and glory in a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. Do you see what he's saying? I'm, I'm the one Daniel wrote about. Now, if I were Nicodemus, I would have gone back. I would have spent, I would have taken a sabbatical on that one. <laughs> like, is this, is this really true? Because if this description from Daniel applies to Jesus, it means he's God. Who else is going to reign forever and ever? Who else is one before whom every person will one day bow? He was claiming to be God. And part of the equation of our ability to find eternal life and to be born again is to acknowledge who he was. Because as I said last week, if Jesus wasn't God, if he wasn't divine, he can't save any of us. It was required that he live a sinless life to go to a cross in order to take upon himself the full penalty of everything you and I have done wrong so that once the justice of God was, was paid against Jesus, then God could extend forgiveness to you with the debt paid. That's what Jesus came to do. Resurrection proved God accepted the payment on our behalf, but Jesus was claiming to be be this one from Daniel, this son of man. But then, Jesus got into the second part, what, what he was going to do. In John 3, 14 and 15, we read where Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Just like Moses lifted up the snake on a pole, Son of Man's going to be lifted up. So that, and here's the promise, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. By the way, this claim to be the Son of Man was the thing that got Jesus arrested and beaten for blasphemy and eventually crucified. Jesus had already been arrested. He was standing before the high priest in Matthew chapter 26. You could read it for yourself. Do you know what Jesus did? He quoted from Daniel, the verses we just read. And he said, you're going to see me being ushered before the ancient of days. And when Jesus made that claim, the high priest tore his clothing. He said, blasphemy, blasphemy. We don't need any more witnesses. You've heard it with your own ears. Jesus was claiming to be God. But now he's saying something else. And I, again, I don't know exactly what Nicodemus thought he was saying, except I will say this that when Nicodemus stood at the cross, which I believe he was standing right there, and he saw Jesus lifted up, he put it all together. Now, what's the story that Jesus is referring to here? Well, let me briefly talk about it. In the Old Testament, uh, Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, where they had been for over 400 years. And as they wandered in the wilderness, the people of Israel continually complained and grumbled against God and Moses. It was continuous. I just finished reading the book of Numbers and, and actually Deuteronomy as well, and I'm reading about this complaining. I, every time I read it, I think, You're ba you big babies. All of you, you just make me sick with all your complaining. Although I have to confess, after I accused the entire generation, the thought occurred to me that I probably would have done the same thing. <laughs> 
if I were part of them and it was desert conditions and I was thirsty and I'm wondering, where are you, God? I might have been one of them. I don't know. I might have been. But God would discipline them for this. Say, stop doing that. You need to trust me. And they wouldn't listen and it happened time and time again. And then at a certain point, God sent some snakes, poisonous snakes among the people to get their attention, to discipline them. Now, that may seem like a kind of a cruel thing to do, these poisonous snakes biting the people because they were complaining, but it is a visible picture of the problem every one of us has. In Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul said, the wages of sin is death. That's just, it's a visible picture of the, the penalty for sin is death. There you see it just a little bit more close and up front. You're sinning against God, the result is death. But anyway, the people cried out to God and to Moses. They said, we've sinned against you, Moses. We've sinned against God. Please pray for us because the people that were being bitten were dying. And so Moses prayed to God and God told him what to do in Numbers 21, 8 and 9. We read, then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who's bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Bronze, by the way, is the medal of judgment in the Bible. The snake that he put on the pole, Moses put on the pole, couldn't save anyone, of course. And it wasn't an idol. Some people think, well, wait a minute, it's a graven image. No, it wasn't. That snake represented, though, the consequences of their sin visibly. It's the wages of sin is death. There you see it right in front of you. Now, Jesus used this illustration to help Nicodemus understand what he needed to do to be born again. He said, just as Moses put the snake up on the pole, so the Son of Man is going to be on the pole. He's going to be lifted up, which, by the way, he's lifted up in two ways. He's lifted up on the cross, and he was lifted up in eternity and worshiped one day. But just like Moses put the snake up there. Anyone that was bitten, all they had to do was look. That's Jesus' point. You want to be born again, all you have to do is look to Jesus. Because you can't earn this thing. It's, it, you can only receive it as a gift and you only receive it by faith. If you were one of the people that was bitten in the Old Testament by one of those snakes and you were dying, if in your mind you thought, how could looking up at some snake on a pole heal me, you would have died. But if you trusted God, you say, I, I will trust what you say to do. I will look up. I will exercise faith in you, God, as the one who can heal me. They were restored to health. And Jesus said the same thing was going to happen to him. And all you have to do is look to him by faith. And if you wonder if that's what Jesus really meant by this, the very next verse, the most famous in the Bible, clarifies it once and for all. John 3:16 For God loved the world in this way He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish like the people of Israel did in the Old Testament but will have eternal life For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world but that the world might be saved or delivered through him and please take this next part to heart. Don't dismiss it. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. 
You won't be condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Real clear, those who believe and put their trust in Christ will not be condemned. They'll be forgiven of their sin. They'll be given the gift of eternal life. They will be born again. Those who do not believe are condemned. Why? Because they're, they're going to remain in their sin. It's almost like they're saying, I, I'm going to tr trust that I'll be okay when I stand before God. I'm not... The Christian comes to God on the basis of what Jesus did for him. We don't come on the basis of our own goodness. That's, that's the difference. Now, this whole story reinforces something I talk about in the book I wrote, When God Walked Alone. I, I mentioned three points that I think are, are helpful to understand. Number one, that the problem that we all face is a thing called sin. Nicodemus needed to realize he was a sinner. That's why Jesus immediately went for that. Unless someone's born again. Got to be born again. That's the starting point. The problem we all face is this thing called sin. The solution is Jesus. It's not us. The solution is Jesus, and specifically because of who he was and what he did. Who he was and is was the Son of God, God the Son, the sinless one. What did he do? He died in our place for our sin. He sacrificed himself for us. And the response that God is looking for is faith or trust. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God instills life within us. Again, He imparts it to us. We can't, we can't earn it. We can't, there's nothing we can do. He imparts eternal life to us. And this is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1. The Apostle Paul said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. The Bible says, um, because of sin, we're spiritually dead. But skipping to verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah or with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive. He instilled life in us. He gave us new birth. You are saved by grace. You're saved by the grace and kindness of God. So for some of you, the question is, have you turned to Christ for eternal life? Have you been born again? Have you been born new? Has there come a moment in your life in which you acknowledge your spiritual condition and turn to Jesus? Oftentimes, I've asked people over the years, you know, when did you become a Christian? When did, when did you put your faith in Christ? The answer they often say is something like, I've always been a Christian. Uh, technically, that's not true of any of us. We were all dead in our transgressions. We need to be born again. Now, sometimes we, I know what people mean by that because they don't know exactly when it happened. They know they believe in Jesus now, and it's true of my own life. I don't know the exact moment in which I put my faith in Christ. I think it was when I was five, and my dad shared the gospel with me. I think that's when it was. But there's a moment in which a baby is not born, and then it's born. And that birth takes place when we acknowledge our situation, our sin, and our inability to save ourselves, and then we reach out to Christ to save us. We say, yes, I put my trust in you. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want to offer uh, two applications. One is that I think as Christians, we just need to have a certain humility about sin, period, in our own lives. I think we do put on a certain image. It's the type of image where people don't even want to come to church because they think, well, everyone's going to know I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. 
You know, none of us would get to heaven if it weren't by the grace of God. It's, it's what he does for us. We can't earn it. We're not good people in a sense, except by the grace of God. And I just encourage us to have a certain amount of humility. But second, I, I want to suggest this. I, you know, we're going through the Gospel of John, and you can't do the Gospel of John without getting into the Gospel all the time. But I love to do that for this reason, that we need to learn how to answer the question for other people when they say, what must I do? I want to be able to say, you know, well, the problem is sin, the solution is Jesus because of who he was and what he came to do. And the response God's looking for is faith. And I encourage you to be prepared for that. We're now going to close with a song. Two of the lines of the song really tie into Nicodemus' story. They go this way. For so long I was searching for the truth when all along I was searching for you. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.